Are you looking to build your church's group ministry? Get the training and resources you need with All Access, a new plan from the Small Group Network. I'm James Browning with the Small Group Network. For $49 a month or just $4.90 a year, you get All Access to courses, workshops, coaching, and more. Plus, half off all of our in-person events, including The Lobby and Accelerate. And the best part is, All Access is a church-wide license. That means every staff member, every volunteer, and every leader at your church is included for that same price. Head over to smallgroupnetwork.com slash allaccess to learn more and compare plans. All Access is your community unlocked. Welcome to Leadership Journey, part of the Group Talk Network of Podcasts. Join Bill Search as he walks you through biblical Christian leadership, gives you keys to personal growth and development, as well as dynamics of leading others that honors God. Open your heart and mind and enjoy Leadership Journey with Bill Search. Well, welcome back to the Leadership Journey. I'm your host, Bill Search. Good to be with you. Thanks for tuning in. Recently, I spoke at the Right Now Media Conference, great conference in Dallas, uh, Fort Worth area. They always do it in the first, second week in November. They're always good hosts. It's always great speakers. I'm not listening myself as one of the great speakers. So I did a workshop, not one of the main speakers, but nonetheless, uh, the workshop that I presented and achieved uh, quite a bit of, of good conversation afterwards was rethinking discipleship. Discipleship is one of the big buzzwords in church culture once again, and it's kind of had its ups and downs and hills and valleys. And if you Google the term right now, there's a lot of resources out there. A lot of people who want to sell you goods and services, as well as uh, a lot of people who have um, uh, opinions about the subject. And so I thought it was kind of timely to do a workshop on this. And I started out by telling a story. When I was a pastor in Kentucky, I was at a big church there in Louisville, and we had a team meeting, a whole bunch of us that were involved in the arena of discipleship there at the church. We were all ordained ministers. We'd all been practicing ministry for at least 10 years, if not more, some 20, 25 years in that room. And there was probably about a dozen or maybe a little more than that. And around the room, the question was, uh, who discipled you? And it was fascinating because the number of people who went and told their testimony, their story, and some of them in tears talked about how they had not been discipled. They had not actually had anybody invest in them. Nobody had spiritually poured into them and taught them how to be a disciple and how to disciple others. Now, there's something you should know about me. If you do that Enneagram thing, and I have mixed feelings about Enneagram, so if you're a big fan, feel free to mention what your Enneagram number is in the comments on our social media channels. But anyhow, I'm I'm an eight. In fact, before I ever took the Enneagram, one of my friends described it and said, you ever taken the Enneagram? And I'm like, it's stupid. Why would I do that? I've already taken Myers-Briggs and about 20 other personality things. I do not need the Enneagram. And my friend's like, you're probably an eight. So I took it, and yeah, an eight is a challenger, and I think I'm a well-behaved challenger. So if you know me, some people who know me very well think, I, I'm not sure about that. And that's because I like to think that I'm a fairly well-behaved, uh, generally mature in some audiences, 
eight. Doesn't mean I always speak my mind, but in certain situations, I just cannot contain myself. And so here we are, we're in this meeting and everyone's talking about how nobody discipled them. Some of them are dabbing their ears with Kleenex, their ears. Yeah, I'm not rewinding that. I'm just going to let that live. They dab their eyes, not their ears. But anyhow, they were really upset about this. And uh, then it comes to me and everyone looks at me like, Bill, go ahead and tell your sad tale. And instead what I said was, uh, isn't it funny that here we are, a collection of pretty well accomplished ministers. I didn't mean that arrogantly. I just mean that we were all running big parts of ministry. It was a big church and we all had big responsibilities. And near as I could tell, all my colleagues, including me, were bearing it okay. We were doing it faithfully and everybody around that circle, to my knowledge then as well as now, I've kept up on most of them, were were lovers of Jesus Christ. I mean, they were really growing in their faith and they were passionate about their faith and they wanted to pass on their faith and they were doing just that. And yet somehow they felt they hadn't been discipled. And I could only think of that scene from The Princess Bride. And if you know the film, you know the film, right? Where uh, little Fezzig keeps saying inconceivable. And there's finally a point where Inigo Montoya goes, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And I kind of brought that up. I think you keep using the term discipleship in order to self-flagellate or to just feel sorrowful or to feel like there is some a mystical other thing out there, as if what you're doing now is not discipling people. And so that was the story I started with, and it's the story I start with now because it really shaped how I approached this subject. Even then, I thought, these people are not defining this thing correctly. Because if, if it means something far more, then there's a big, big miss. And so um, that began kind of a journey for me. And the first thing I did was just think about the term itself. And, and that's really the first part of reconsidering discipleship is we have to reconsider the term discipleship. Now, if you've listened to my podcast before, you know that this is kind of something I harp on from time to time, and I'll harp on it again. See, uh, disciple is a transliterated Latin term. Transliteration means when you take a word from one language and then you draw it into a different language that it's not its native language. So, for instance, one of my favorite uh, words from ancient Greek is moron. And in English, it means exactly the same thing it meant like almost 3,000 years ago or more. So it has jumped languages. And if we were in ancient Greece and you heard the term moron, you'd go, I wonder what that means. No, it means exactly what it means today back then. It's a person who's not all that bright. Well, disciple is that way. It doesn't have the same meaning as moron. A disciple just means, it's a Latin term, discipulus, and all it is is a, a learner or a student or a pupil. Somebody who has attached themselves to a field of study or to a particular master of a subject. And so they are either trying to be like their master, like Aristotle would have had disciples or Plato would have had disciples or Jesus Christ had disciples. It's either you're trying to wrap your life around this figure, this person, the way they conduct themselves, the way they think, the way they process the world. Um, or it's a subject. 
um, you are a disciple of mathematics, you are a disciple of geography, you are a disciple of geology, that is, you're a student of these things. And so that's really what the term means. In the Greek language, it's mathetes or mathetes. And when you see disciple in the New Testament, almost always it is the word methetes or methetes. And so it's either describing a person or uh, some sort of process. Now here's what's interesting. The first English translation of the Bible, which is William Tyndale's Bible, and about 70%, by the way, of William Tyndale's Bible made it into the King James Bible. So Tyndale's Bible is from 1534, so nearly 500 years ago. And so uh, the word disciple we often see in the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples, right? And I've heard a lot of uh, churches, uh, in I've been in these seminars before, and if I offend you, well, I'm sorry about that, but I'm right and you're wrong. The the Great Commission, go and make disciples, don't, don't awkwardly say, well, we're to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That is theologically accurate. I'm not disagreeing with that. But it is structurally uncomfortable to say, because what you've done is you have not defined the term. So you are... You are not bringing any clarity to anything. All you're doing is repeating the word over and over without explaining what the word means. So how did Tyndale translate it? Here it is. Go therefore and teach all nations. See, he emphasized the art form of making a disciple, which is to teach the person. And the King James in 1611 picks up on that and says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. And so I'm not saying that uh, making disciples is uh, lecturing in a classroom. That's the problem people hear when they hear teach. What I'm saying is, is if you want to properly understand the term, it is to pass along a bit of information, knowledge. John Wesley, uh, and I'll get into this a little bit later, but John Wesley, he says that there's three levels of change that takes place in a person, and he developed a system around this. He said that there's a cognitive change, there's a behavioral change, and then there is a affective change. Now, he didn't use those terms necessarily, but, but that's the the summation of his approach, that he had to introduce people to key information, then that should change their lives, and then that should change their hearts. And sometimes all that happened in one night, but sometimes that took place over a period of time, and that's where he developed his system, which later became a method, which is what Methodism was rooted in. So the reason that this is really important and why we have to get this down is sometimes we say, well, a disciple is someone who's really serious in their faith, but everyday average Christians, they're like just spiritual bums. They're just spiritual freeloaders, or they're, they're not what they ought to be. And so when we talk about discipling and discipleship, we make it sound like this is the Navy SEALs of Christianity. But it's not. Because um, even the New Testament doesn't say that it is. In uh, John six sixty six, which is an ironic uh, address for this, but in John six six six, it says from from this time after Jesus had given some really tough teaching, from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They no longer followed him. Now it doesn't say they ceased being his disciples. That was true. They ceased being his disciples, but it says many of his disciples ceased following him. And we have to remember, there were a lot of disciples that weren't very good. What kind of student were you? Were you valedictorian of your high school? 
Did you graduate college magna sum laude? Well, most people don't. Most people get by. In fact, I read an article once that said the world's run by people with C averages. If that's you, congratulations. But my point is simple, is that to be a disciple just means to be a learner or a student or a pupil of Jesus Christ. That's the Christian disciple. In fact, that's why the word Christian became in vogue. In the book of Acts, Christian overtakes the word disciple. And why? Some people want to reclaim disciple, and that's not wrong to do that. It's just, you got to understand, why did why did disciples suddenly go by the moniker Christian? Well, it happens in Acts, and it happens because it's an insult. It's a derogatory term, and so at least we think. And by the time the early church writers were writing, they say, oh yes, I wear the term Christian, and it is an insult, but I wear it with a, a level of dignity because I'm loyal to Christ. And so to be a disciple doesn't mean that you're an A student or a Navy SEAL of Christianity. It just means that you're following Jesus. You're giving it a good shot. You're, you're making a go of it. So it's important as we reconsider this term, or that, that as we reconsider this idea that we reconsider this term. Um, the second observation in how to reconsider discipleship is that idealism is inspiring, but not always helpful. So here's a great John Stott quote. He says, there's a paradox at the heart of the church. It is this painful tension between what the church claims to be and what the church seems to be, between the divine ideal and the human reality, between romantic talk about the bride of Christ and the very unromantic, ugly, unholy, and quarrelsome Christian community we know ourselves to be. It is the tension between our final glorious destiny in heaven and our present very inglorious performance on earth. And uh, it was such a great uh, quote. This is from Basic Christian Leadership, if you want to look it up. It's in the first chapter of Basic Christian Leadership. Excellent John Stott book. Only John Stott could say something so succinctly and beautifully. And this reminds me of so many of these stories today of people deconstructing their faith. It makes me very sad. But so often they're deconstructing their faith and they're breaking up with a faith. And if you hear these stories, sometimes you're like, I, that's not even a Christian. I I, I recognize. I'd break up with that pseudo-God too. And they describe a God that isn't the God described in the Bible. Now, there's a few instances where there are. I heard, for instance, a famous uh, Christian, uh, former Christian, uh, he had written books and he, uh, he, was, uh, he was a pastor of a church and then he just sort of threw it all away, threw his marriage, family, everything away, faith, everything, threw it all away. And part of his deconstruction story, in fact, he wrote, <laughs> he like, because he makes money off of people, you know, he, uh, he wrote like a book or pamphlet or like even has like a seminar on how to deconstruct your faith and then <laughs> social media attacked him for it. I'm not laughing at the sad part of losing his faith. I am laughing at the idea this guy just knows how to make a buck off people. Anyhow, I, 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 I'm not going to mention his name. You might be able to figure it out. I will neither confirm nor deny even if you guess. But um, when I heard his deconstruction story, I thought, who are you even talking about? How is it you were even a pastor? It was so um, lopsided. It was such a, it was such an uncomplicated God. It was a God of childhood. It was a God of such, not simplicity in the best of sense, but in, in uh, some sort of juvenile sense. He had broken up with his childhood God. But see, your childhood God is part of your God when you are a child. But as you grow up, you realize the complexities, the layers, and. And so uh, when you're a child, you might, I remember this story, it 
little church I grew up in, this little girl invited Jesus into her heart. And then later that day, she asked the pastor, could I ask him to leave? Because he's very big and my heart is very small. And it was sweet. And that was her idea. You know, that was her idea of God, that you were inviting a human being to live inside her heart. And she just couldn't comprehend how that was possible. And the pastor just kind of smiled, patted her head and said, yes, of course, honey, you know. And he wasn't being a, a pagan. He was just saying, okay, she doesn't quite understand all this. It would be cruel to a child to say, no, he's in there. Get used to it, you know. So anyhow, I, I bring up this deconstruction because what happens is idealism, wrong notions sometimes, sometimes swamp good theology, good biblical basis of things. And so, um, so for instance, um, most in most discipleship strategies, they go, well, hey, we're going to do it like Jesus did it. This is what we're going to do. We're going to do it like Jesus did it. So I wrote down a few observations of things Jesus did, and I wonder if you've done this, if you're making disciples like Jesus did. So for instance, you get invited to a wedding. Do you plus six? I mean, you're like, hey, uh, I got a bunch of people, and they're going to come with me to the wedding. Um, do you tell people when um, you lead them to Christ that now you have to drop your profession and give up everything and just kind of come follow me, whatever that might mean. I mean, just kind of hang out with me. You have to quit your job, quit everything. Uh, I'm just asking. I mean, this is what Jesus did. So if we're going to do it like Jesus, let's make sure we do it like him. Um, or, uh, or maybe we do let him. Um, stay in their job. Like Zacchaeus, I mean, he, I don't think he had to quit. He just had to like throw a party and like promise to give stuff back that he stole, but that's good. Or I guess on the other hand, there is Matthew and he had to give up everything. Or um, if you become a disciple, can you remain secret like Nicodemus did right up to the end? Can you do that? I mean, you're like, hey, here's the deal. You can accept Christ. Don't You don't have to tell anybody. It can just be kind of a thing between us. We can meet up at night and talk about it. And it's fine. Uh, or, uh, on the other hand, there is the rich young ruler. Um, do you say, Hey, uh, if you're super wealthy, you got to give it all up, give it to charity. And I don't mean later in a trust to like some other thing, but in the meantime, you get to live on your yacht. I'm saying you got to give it up, give it up now. Or, uh, or, or if you're going to make a disciple, do you do it like, like the demoniac in the cemetery and you say, well, actually you can go home. In fact, I don't want you to follow. I want you to go home and just tell people all the good things God's done for you. Uh, it, you get it. I mean, I'm not trying to be a jerk, although I kind of am, but I'm just saying that if you're going to build around an idealism that says build it like Jesus built it, do, do, you, do you do that? Or do you just pick and choose the parts that you, you like? I remember years ago, I was serving a church and we had hired a consultant guy, trainer guy, and I really liked his stuff. I really did. I, uh, he, he emphasized the harmony of the Gospels, though I, one of my New Testament scholar friends like, uh, the Gospels exist separately or not to harmonize them. That's not the point. But still, I liked it and I got a lot out of it. And he had a Bible study that went along with it and I got a lot out of that. And I had a small group of guys I led through it and we really, we really learned a lot. It was really quite a neat experience. But he talked about noting the pattern of Jesus. He said that if you notice Jesus, says, yeah, you just come and see what I'm all about. And then later he says, hey, follow me. And then later he's like, hey, take up your cross. And so don't say take up your cross on day number one. And I remember sitting in the training seminars going, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that really does make a lot of sense. And it still makes a lot of sense to me, except if you look in the New Testament, Jesus didn't do it that way. He did that with some, but not with everybody. I mean, some people, it seemed like he met him for the very first time. It was like, hey, give up everything, take up your cross, follow me. 
So I, again, I'm not trying to be a jerk. And if, if that's really what you're all about, you probably quit the podcast already. It's like, cause this dope doesn't know what he's talking about. But the third observation is that tried and tested methodology that worked long ago, it's still working. I mean, it, it's interesting because, um, the methodology that, uh, that, seem to be very fruitful in the past, much of it still works. I mean, you, you just look at, I think of some of the, some of the systems that have been out there 200 years ago or better, they started Sunday school, not morphed and it's changed, but my church, like a lot of churches, is kind of a hybrid church. We do a lot of different things. If you've ever read the book Simple Church, we're the opposite of that. But it works. And it works pretty well. In fact, I think it works really well. And uh, one of the fascinating pieces of it is, is uh, years ago in ministry, I was told Sunday school, you can't build community there. You can't actually learn to care for each other there. You don't have help people change there. And I've seen all those things happen. So I'm, I'm a big believer in small groups, but I'm a big believer in Sunday school too. And so whatever you call it in your church, if you have that kind of thing, you already know it works. And if you don't have that sort of thing, just you can put down the sword and let the rhetoric go. I'm here to tell you it works. Those old methods worked then and they work now. Now, small groups do, too, and they weren't invented in the 70s. They, they have been around for a very long time in certain pockets of church life. I picked up a book by Sam Shoemaker, who is one of the, uh, the spiritual role models of the 12-step program. He, if you go to AA, to their website, in part of the story, they'll talk about Sam Shoemaker. He was, a, he was an Episcopal priest in New York City, later, I believe, Pittsburgh. And he had quite a ministry and was quite the prolific author in his day. And one of his books from 1948 is about how to do ministry. And he has an entire chapter in there, get this, on how to do small groups. Big fan. He says what a fan he is of getting people together in a house or in an apartment. And then he has a bunch of lists of things of what to do to prepare for your small group. Like take the phone off the hook, put the pet in the other room if you have a dog or a cat. I mean, stuff like that that I thought, how charming. I thought that we came up with those lists of things to do to prepare for your small group. And Sam wrote those things back in 1948. That's when that book was published. So small groups, of course, predate even Sam. But I'm just letting you know that the modern movement, it goes back deep into the 20th century. In fact, there's a lot of research being done on small groups out of University of Minnesota. A pair of brothers did a lot of research on this. Johnson & Johnson, no relation to the people who do Band-Aids and medical stuff. Uh, no, no, these guys are professors of philosophy, education, and psychology or something like that. And they have uh, numerous books on the effectiveness of small groups. Uh, it's in one of those books that I bumped into Bruce Tuckman's theories, which were really interesting because I thought the whole forming, uh, norming, storming, uh, I thought all that was invented by the pastor that mentored me, but no, no, it was Bruce Tuckman in the 1960s, a university of, or an Ohio state university professor came up with that. So, you know, we look at the things, Sunday school, small groups, um, other method that helps people grow books, tracks. Back in my day, it was cassette tapes. 
but now it's podcasts. There is no shortage of ways to consume good information and then to digest it and interact with other people around it. And then finally, this is where I'll end today. Finally, it's good to be skeptical about new systems. That's number four. Good to be skeptical about new systems. When you hear something new, I like this from uh, John in his letter. This is 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, that's mind-boggling. I think Christians were persecuted in the time of John, and yet there were fakers out there that were trying to make a buck off the church. Now, that just blows my mind. I mean, it makes sense today. I bumped into more than a few fakers that are trying to make a buck off the church. But I, I today, in Western forms of Christianity, where there is no real threat, I understand why people are, are doing some of that mischief. But in the ancient times, when life was tough, this is fascinating. It tells you that not every person who presents themselves well, not, they, they may not know what they're talking about. They may actually, they may actually uh, in football parlance, they may pull you off sides. They may get you focused on wrong stuff. And so test the spirits, you know, things like, does this scheme sound right? Or does it sound strange? Does it feel too good to be true? Um, do, do I personally want to be involved in the system that's being described? Um, can I verify the results? I mean, can I make a phone call and verify the results? Is the source of the information credible? Um, what do I really know about them? Or um, do they just present well on LinkedIn. Uh, how, much, how much money is this going to cost? Like, bottom line, if I were to move in this general direction, um, how will this impact the people I, I serve? How will they respond to it? Will they be glad for this new opportunity to grow in their faith, or will they be resistant or annoyed? Does this replace something I already do? And if so, is it more effective than the thing I replaced, or do I just like change? And then finally, if you don't ask those questions, if you just kind of like you're an early adopter, you're like, Bill, you just don't get it. New ideas are the best. Then, then my last question for you is, is your resume up to date? Because you're going to need a really fresh and polished resume. Because if you like every new idea and you don't test it, and all you do is just plow up perfectly good soil to plant other plants where you had planted other plants and they're not any more beautiful or more effective, then you will probably be shown the door, my friend. So keep that LinkedIn profile real up to date because if you're always the early adopter, beware. Test the spirits. Think about these things. So I hope that I hope this has been helpful. We'll revisit the end of this uh, in the month of December of rethinking discipleship. But those should at least give you something to chew on, something to think about. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, you've been listening to Bill Search on the Leadership Journey. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Leadership Journey, part of the Group Talk Network's podcast. If you like what you've heard, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcast. If you want to learn more, make sure you check out smallgroupnetwork.com for more resources. Hi, it's James Browning again. I wanted to let you know that we have a big event coming out this July. We are combining our Align and Accelerate training workshops for small group point people just like you. 
Day one will feature a line, a training overview of small group ministry covering the big pictures and strategies of small group ministry, plus how to align it with your church's mission and vision. It's perfect for those new or returning to small group ministry. Days two and three are Accelerate, an intensive workshop that dives deep into small group strategies. You and your team will come out with a 12 to 18 month plan for your small groups. This workshop is perfect for churches who want to take their existing small group ministry to the next level. This event takes place at the Saddleback Rancho Retreat Center in beautiful San Juan Capistrano, California. Lodging and lunches are included. You have the flexibility of choosing to attend Align or Accelerate or get a discounted rate for attending both. Oh, and if you happen to be an All Access member, your whole team always gets 50% off. So we'll see you this July 11th through 13 at Align and Accelerate. For more information, go to smallgroupnetwork.com slash conferences or check it out in the show notes.